This episode is brought to you by Kensington's newest title from Shelley Laurenston, Breaking Badger. Isabel, which would you rather, a honey badger or a tiger? Rather what? Well, now you don't have to choose. Shelley Laurenston, best-selling author of The Pride, Call of Crows, and The Honey Badger Chronicles, and Dragonkin series, but under a different name, is back with more sexy, shape-shifting antics. It's instinct that drives Finn Malone to rescue a bunch of hard-battling honey badgers. The Siberian <laughs> tiger shifter just can't bear to see his fellow shifters harmed. But no way can Finn have a house full of honey badgers when he also has two brothers with no patience. Things just go from bad to worse when the badgers rudely ejected him from his home turn out to be the only ones who can help him solve a family tragedy. He's just not sure he can even get back into the badger's good graces, since badgers lack graces of any kind. Mads knows her teammates aren't about to forgive the cats that were so rude to them, but Moody Finn isn't so bad, and he's cute. The badger part of her understands Finn's burning need to avenge his father's death. After all, vengeance is her favorite pastime. Um, so Mad sets about helping Finn settle his family score, which has its perks since she gets to avoid her own family drama. Ugh, been there. Besides, fighting side by side with Finn is her kind of fun, especially when she can get him in a hot and heavy snuggle with her very own growling, eye-rolling, and utterly irresistible kitty cat. I might get this from my brother-in-law. He loves honey badgers and Siberian tigers. Hopefully not like that, but since his birthday <laughs> is right around the corner, you and our listeners can find Breaking Badger by Shelley Laurenston wherever books are sold. Find out more on kensingtonbooks.com. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we've talked about a lot. We have, undoubtedly. Indisputably, we've talked about a lot. What's your sexiest part? <sighs> I don't know. It's not a sexy book. I mean, I wasn't expecting sex because that's not really the way these things work. I thought it was very sexy. And I feel like this is the one sexy part, which is Oswald is one of our heroine's two suitors. And he decides that he's going to profess his love to her in an attempt to extricate her from our hero, right? Because they've become close friends. So he finds her in her home barn and he's expressing his concerns. And then it turns into expressing his amorousness. And then it turns into him trying to kiss her. And it's his like first real attempt at something like this. And he does a bad job. He's interrupted by our hero who kind of tisks tisks him boxes him on the ears right treats him as if he's like a silly puppy and then he has this conversation with our heroine wherein he's laying out like how he would have gone about seducing her right at the last minute before he kisses her which would be actually their second kiss because he did assault her in the woods earlier they are interrupted by her brother there's a lot of record scratch like it's not even fade to black it's record scratch yes that scene, though, because, like, he goes through it, like, inch by inch, where he's like, we'd put the kittens that are in the basket down, and then I'd pull you close, and then if I couldn't contrive for you to look up, I'd go ahead and gently pull your chin up, and then we would be looking at each other, and our lips would be so close, and then Aubrey shows up to fuck that up. It's a really sexy part. Yeah. Is that also your sexy part? Am I right in asserting that's probably the only... <laughs> 
I think that's really sexy. I, of course, love the melodramatic scene at the very end when she shows up at the hall and he's like kind of been obliteratingly, he's been getting obliteratingly drunk on purpose to like forget her. And then she shows up in kind of like a crumpled gown and he's like, no. And then she's like, hey, babe, what's up? And then he like comes to her before he can like stop himself. I loved that. Yeah. But it's not like a sexy book. And like you shouldn't pick up this book if you want. This is a book written for people who like wished Jane Austen had written more stuff and will settle for Georgette Heyer. Yes. Absolutely. And like, I that's actually something that I wanted to talk about. One of the things that I really appreciated about this book that like made me think about Darcy differently and also made me think about Rochester differently is that Damerel is a real adult in a lot of ways where he has a lot of compassion, both for Yardley, her quote unquote worthy suitor, and for Oswald, her quote unquote eager suitor. And like, there's an anticipation of violence in the text that Damerel never really rises to that I thought was kind of nice because he's like I remember what it was like to make a cake of myself I remember what it was like to be in love and to not get it to not get it right and like you'll recover young puppy and he on her percent calls him a puppy which is super infantilizing but like fucking Oswald's like 19 so like fine I guess yeah well it's interesting that you bring up Sir Rochester because Georgia Heyer is on the record as saying that she specialized in two romantic male leads, a Mark I and a Mark II. And I feel like Oswald and Thomas Yardley are examples of through a mirror darkly, Mark I and Mark II. Assuming Georgette Heyer had any room in her heart for affection for either of these kind of people, (laughs) which I would say is disputable as I discussed at length. But I think like, so Mark I is described as having overturns of Mr. Rochester. In her words, rude, overbearing, often a bounder. The second, Mark II, Mm -hmm. is sophisticated, often a style icon. So I feel like Oswald is a Mark II. Absolutely. He loves Byron. He's got like the curl and the buckskins. Thomas is a Mark I. But our hero, Jasper Damerel, he's kind of a confluence of the two. Like, he's considered very stylish. But he's the kind of cool stylish that Venetia knows she can incense him by suggesting that he's a Byron. And he's also kind of overbearing and a bounder. Like, he grabs her in the woods and kisses her without her consent. Ran away with a married woman. Hosted an orgy, is never disputed only gently laughed at and like he also you know pushes her (laughs) away from him he is utterly convinced by every argument that what's best for her every argument the one argument made by her uncle to him that what's best for her is for him to end the relationship and so he does and that's overbearing in a way Mm -hmm. absolutely But it's that self-deprecating overbearing of I'll hurt you and me in the short term so that you can live the happy version of whatever invented future. It's very much like Jack Dawson putting Rose on the boat. And he's like, you'll be fine. I'll get the next one. And he's like standing with Cal. And then she gets off and she's like, you jump, I jump, right? Like, no, you can't send me off into a future without you. 
even though he absolutely does on the door. Yeah. But also, like, not unlike Lady Denny and Lady Henley, like, he does not ever entertain the idea that she'll be a single woman. Like, he does make suggestions to her, perhaps hoping that she'll be like, no, because I'm going to marry you. He does make suggestions to her. He's like, even at the age of 25, you're going to go to London and you're going to find someone who wants to marry you because you're so darn beautiful. Yeah, and like when the uncle shows up and is like, I'm going to take you to London, he's had this clandestine conversation with Damarell. Damarell's like, well, is Aubrey going to go with you? Aubrey would hate London. And she's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with Aubrey. He's going to be such a cranky sourpuss. And he's like, why don't you just send him here? Like, let him bring his dogs and his books and his horses. Yeah. And like, I'll take care of it. There's there's a move in Damarell especially as he understands her brother Aubrey where he says this thing that was so beautiful where he's like he needs to learn to go to places where his disability won't be despised or pitied and Venetia is really struck by that and she's like no one understands that that's his greatest fear that he'll be despised and pitied that like those two things go hand in hand with Aubrey's limp and that Yardley is the one who constantly makes Aubrey feel like he can never forget Mm -hmm. that he is indeed disabled. That's one of the first distinctive markers of Damarell, where he's like, oh, this is a thing about you, like you have brown eyes. Cool, moving on. Whereas Yardley's like, we'll put you in the boat. It won't hurt your leg. Like, don't don't worry about your leg. Constantly pointing it out. Yardley thinks that that makes him a good person. A compassionate person. Yeah. But like, that's not what... Compassion is giving people what they want as much as it is providing people what they need. Right. And so like, we all understand almost immediately that Yardley does not understand Aubrey's physical disability at all. Or the way that he navigates it. But Damarell, without asking, understands it almost immediately. Now, if anyone is saying, oh, bah, 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 but you said Georgette Heyer was, was a, a eugenicist. eugenicist. <laughs> she is. She is. It's acceptable because he acquired his injury to his hip after he was born. His genetics, perfect. Still pure. Also, he's not the first son, so he won't be inheriting undershore. Yeah, no one, guys, stop freaking out. <laughs> it's fine. It's totally fine. It's totally fine. One of the things about this, that this book did understand really well, is that you have to meet people where they are. Aubrey is not at a place where he wants to be viewed as an invalid or as somebody who wants excessive comment on his disability. He just wants it to be easier. And Yardley makes him feel like an outcast. So like he's not into it. And this is a this is a really good book about talking about the difference between thinking yourself compassionate versus like actually being compassionate in the instance and the potentially only instance of Aubrey. Yeah. I don't know, comes pretty early in the book, comes in one of the earliest conversations between the hero and heroine in which to establish their mutual compatibility. Could be a thesis statement, could set us up for the entire interpretation of the heroine's perspective. What's your weirdest part? Mm, Great question. (laughs) Uh, The fact that everyone thought mom was... (laughs) No, the fact that Venetia thought her mother was dead and literally everyone else knew she was alive. 
That was 100% my weirdest part. I didn't see it coming. I had no way to prepare. And then when it happened, I was like, what the fuck is happening? Well, whenever her mother showed up, I assumed it was going to be our hero's lover who left him for another man. And I was like, this doesn't sound right because they were so specific. (laughs) I did too. And the fact that it wasn't. I was like, oh shit, he had sex with mom and now he's going to marry daughter? That is some dark shit. But no, he didn't have sex with the mom. He didn't run away with the mom. She's just like, whatever. She just ran away with some guy. And everybody said she was dead, except Conway, the brother in Belgium knew. And he told Aubrey when Aubrey was 17. In case he died. In case he died. And Aubrey never fucking thought to tell his sister Venetia. And Lady Denny never thought to tell Venetia. And fucking Lady Henley never thought to tell Venetia. Also, Venetia is 25 and running an estate. Well, they all thought it was best not to tell Venetia. Right, but that's fucked up. It is fucked up. It's a fucked up choice. But they all they all had their reasons. I understand all of their reasons. It doesn't stop it from being super fucked up. That is 100% my weirdest part. Like, I definitely thought mom was dead. And then when she turned out to be alive and, like, vapid, and she is. She's super vapid because Venetia goes to see her at this very fancy hotel, and she's like, I remember your smell. And she's like, I can't believe I have a daughter. How old are you, 19? And Venetia's, like, 25. And, like, she's like, ugh. She feels old. It makes her feel old. But, like, fucking embrace your daughter who thought you were dead all these years. Like, fucking do anything to remediate this. Oh, no, you can't? Okay. Well, she, like, wasn't a mother. You know, she got she got sucked. She didn't want to be a mother she either. She got sucked into this fucking system. And then she saw an escape hatch. She did. But I'll tell you what, that's entirely our perception. It's our interpretation. The book gives us no reason to understand her mother as a sympathetic character. But I think one of the differences between 1958 and 2021 is that you and I do understand her sympathetically. And that like when she says, I I never should have been a mother, I take her at her word. We do. The text, I think, also takes her at her word, but sees it as a bad word. Totally. As like a cuckoo's nest situation. Yeah, like, ugh. Yeah, gross on you. Even though this poor woman never had access to you know, adequate birth control or even who she was going to marry. And this is why I feel confident in saying I am objectively, you know, I'm not I'm not a great writer. I am objectively a nicer person than George Dyer. <laughs> and therefore, I feel confident saying I'm actually a nicer person than Venetia. Mm, okay. And I think maybe that's my like rub. That's your weirdest part? You're a nicer person than Venetia? No, it's not my weirdest part. Oh, <laughs> Isabeau. That's not my weirdest part. I want to say, I think my little like itch here, I think my little itch here mm. is that Venetia feels kind of like a fucking Mary Sue. And I've spent so much time having to like ringingly explain to people that like romance isn't that, that whenever something comes out that's like, Mary Sue, that I have to be like, well, it was all, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was also a Mary Sue. And I shouldn't have to be like, hey, other people also did it. So it's okay that romance does it because it's not true. Like, I feel like there can be like good texts that have a Mary Sue as well as like bad texts that, but like a Mary Sue isn't inherently good or evil. I just see 
so much of like the actual problems of romance here as much as I see like a good book like this I feel like is the moment at which we diverted from Austin into something like Gillian Anderson's Margaret Thatcher yeah we (laughs) yes exactly this is the moment at which that happens and then that's the thing that rings out through the ages and makes its way to the mainstream and it's because and I want to say like why do I feel that way oh because this book is an asshole and here we go here's an example of this book being an asshole and my weirdest part I spoke previously on our series about category romances with the Golden Songbird, how Georgette Heyer got really upset that someone else used the phrase make a cake of himself in their romance novel. And she said, guess what? I'm the only one who ever read a book about that you a personal letter that ever used that term so you are wrong and it's my brand right and like she also like defended other things like she wrote this thriller called the conqueror in 1931 and she was like do you know why this book is legitimate because every line of dialogue by william the conqueror is i either found in the historical record of his journals or i found in a letter i didn't make anything up I'm going to get to my weirdest part. But that just like smacks of people saying like, well, I can't write about black people being happy in the 19th century. Like, because they weren't. (laughs) Yeah, it's like there's no historical record. And like treating the historical record like it's not also a novel. (laughs) Totally, exactly. Or that it wasn't suppressed on purpose. Like, I know I felt this way when we read The Sheik, but I also, like, all of the problems of romance are here and all of the good, like, the, 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 oh, the, that, like, lip smacking of romance is also here. Like, it's all here and it drives the me book tingles. up the fucking wall. But, like, her insistence on, like, minutia, first of all, the dialogue in this book is so good. And I think a lot of people when they start writing fiction, folks are like, you've got to be real. You've got to have dialogue. You've got to add more dialogue to your text. Dialogue is where a text comes alive. And then I've read books where the dialogue is just really fucking boring and doesn't contribute a lot. And I'm like, well, this actually wasn't helpful advice for this writer. Looking at you, fixer up in Neon Gods. Exactly. Looking at you, hate to love you. Hate to love you. Hurts to want you. God damn it. It's like fucking Mad Libs. I know. <laughs> but like, that's what I think. Like, the dialogue's not great. And then there are people who are like, head hopping is trash. Well, this book is another example of when head hopping can be really effective. And it's like, we create these ascriptions to writers based on what has been successful for other writers. And there's no quality or credit given to voice. I think that's such a good point, Morgan, and I think that's such a good point about craft, especially as we're thinking about like ties that bind, because I asked on Twitter, I'm like, have you ever read an intergenerational novel that spans 40 years? And everyone's like, no. And I was like, yeah, because like it doesn't happen. And like head hopping to the level that we saw in Evening Star, like it that just doesn't happen anymore. This book used head hopping perfectly. And this book did a really good job with dialogue because dialogue functions as a piece of character description to further the character sketch, but also to further the plot. There is no piece of dialogue that isn't revelatory. Yeah. 
I feel like people will show folks like Venetia and be like, see, you should write like this. If your dialogue was like this, your book would be good. And it's like, yeah, but like maybe you can achieve the same ends in a different way. And maybe you shouldn't try to be super good at dialogue because maybe you're not Georgia at higher. I don't know. I took one creative writing class in my life. But I'm starting to feel like people are shackled. And like there were times when this dialogue was so fucking idiosyncratic and used so much slang. But like when I was reading it on the page, not just when I was listening to Dickie Arms whisper it in my ears, when I was reading it on the page, I was like, what this actually means has no meaning. What I'm reading is a zesty vibe. Like, I'm like, these two are using a lot of slang together, and the slang is silly, and the slang is, like, a little bit sexy. And so, like, I found myself being like, oh, this is really good craft. But, like, at the same time, I can't, like, say it's really good craft because I think of anyone, like, I think it's just the voice of this particular writer. Like, she has been able to establish so much that I'm able to read a vibe in a dialogue rather than reading the dialogue itself like is the dialogue itself great or is this person just cool at curating a vibe and i may not have taken a lot of short story writing classes but i have hosted quite a few parties and i can tell you that vibe is a craft but it's not a craft that we like (laughs) seek to promote it's not a vibe that we seek to promote but we notice its absence Right. Jane Eyre? Vibe. Big vibe. Super big vibes. Pride and Prejudice? Super big vibes. (laughs) Like, that's the thing. Like, it's a vibe. Like, and it's hard. And I bet this vibe fucking sucks for some people. And, like, so much of romance, I think, is a goddamn vibe. It's why people can, like, enjoy something like Ice Planet Barbarians, but we'll never read and enjoy Catherine Coulter. I think what you're hitting on has a lot to do with women's work. And I think one of the reasons why romance is siloed and ridiculed, rightly or wrongly, in the way that it is, is because it feels very vibey. And that it's really hard to pull out any one text as a non-parel because you can't read a romance as a non-parel without its context right because like I feel like you and I can pick out books that have really like rung our bells but it comes from a context it comes from an ocean of books that you and I have read where we can put it well also a couple of years of books talking about books together we can pull out a book for a vibe for each other but I feel like someone reaches out to me and they're like I saw Bridgerton what books would you recommend and I'm like I have no fucking clue what to send your way I'm like you like food I I know like I don't (laughs) eat a macaron I don't know I don't know yeah and I think that's like what when you said I haven't been in a lot of short story uh workshops but I've been like I've hosted a lot of parties I think that might as well just be romance. Like, I haven't written a lot of Pulitzer Prize winners, but I've written a lot of books. Like, I haven't done X, Y, or Z, but I've, like, 
figured out that people like wrist kisses and longing to look at each other and grasping and groping in the dark to be better and that people seem to like to read about that and I think what you said about creating a vibe rather than this being about craft I think craft is certainly a part of it but maybe won't isn't even the most important part of it it's like what's the aftertaste what is the thing that you leave your party goers as they exit? Yeah. What is the what is the last thing on their yeah. palate of your fancy cocktail? And I think romance is so insistent on the HEA yeah. because it is the aftertaste of what has come before. And like this HEA functions really strongly to wipe away a lot of the problems that you and I have been discussing for the last two hours. And like I think in terms of a vibe, romance's function and structure is about that. Why do so many romances have an epilogue? Why do romances insist on an HEA? It's because they're insisting on that aftertaste of a vibe. Yeah, and I think like people are like, oh, this is such a popular genre. Why isn't it more widely respected? And it's like, well, it's a highly segmented genre and it's segmented as much as it's segmented by like like we can point out subgenres what we're really trying to capture is a vibe you know if you have a viking you have a certain vibe that perhaps you would be like inclined to enjoy a shifter as well but if you like a pirate romance you might be more interested in like a rom-com right if you like a Western, have you tried billionaires? And I cannot explain to you that crazy chart I sent to you except to say, like, it's a fucking vibe. It's not so much about genre and subgenre as it is about, like, genre and subfeeling. Yeah. Like, here's the thing. Like, we fucking railed on a book about how incest adjacent it is and it calls a girl baby girl. But to be, but then we also like put up our like little votes for this book for Evening Star, which involves someone's uncle showing them other people having sex, not to their knowledge. And we're like, but this is cool though, right? And it's because like, it's a vibe. <laughs> And, like, we direct people to listen to other romance podcasts when they don't like us. It's a vibe. And that's what makes it so hard to put into, like, an academic context. I think that's exactly right. But I also think that's, like, why it's easy to dismiss. Because it it does defy easy categorization. Because I think you're right to say pirates are very much, like, actors in a contempo rom-com. And, and I, you know... I don't want to say that this is like the softer side of Sears in terms of fiction because I don't think that's right. But mm -hmm. I think yeah. that there's something in the mess. There's something in the exposed id that is valuable and worth <laughs> critiquing and draws a straight line from Jane Austen and Darcy who feels like a younger person than Jasper Damerel. It was weird to read a Jane Austen adjacent book with uh, with a Darcy hybrid who was also young, was older than Darcy and knew the lessons that Darcy hadn't let yet learned. Like that was a weird experience, but also a total vibe because this is an evolution of a Darcy 
but it's also like explicitly a Rochester. Like that's the thing. Like Georgia Hire said, like I read Mr. Rochester, and then I created Damarell, and I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I'm like, it's the the Rochester is the small egg that turns into the Phoenix Darcy. Like Darcy can only function as like, and like that's what's so insane about Jasper Damarell, where he's like, he assaults the heroine and then quotes her Shakespeare and then they have this amazing tete-a-tete, but like he fucking assaulted her. And he contrives to keep her in his house, which Darcy would never. Rochester would always. A hundred percent. But he also understands the disability aspect of the little brother and like is working to both make that better, but not infantilize it, which seems like a Darcy move and not a Rochester move. But then he's like, I also read Shakespeare, which is so Rochester. Such a Rochester. I mean, look, fuck, you know, it's hard out here for a romance podcaster Cause I don't know what your fucking vibe is. I don't know what your vibe is, but I do know that inside this genre, there's a vibe for you. That's the thing. Like, a lot of fiction is trying to show you something. Like, romance gets touted as this, like, sensorial, sensationalist genre. But I feel like every other genre, including literary fiction, like, there's lots that goes on. There's lots of pleasure in it, right? There's lots of hardship in it. But most of it serves to, like, show you something you never saw before. When they sit down to write those books, they're thinking, like, what new and profound thing can I say? Like, I I think there are romance authors who do that and they are the romance and there are like not even subtextual like main textual projects that we talk about what is sent what is unique about romance is that romance isn't out to tell you anything you didn't already know romance is just out to tell you that it's okay to feel the way you feel and just to find that little button and just that little pearl and just tickle it It wants to tickle your id. It just wants to tickle your id. (laughs) It's not out to like change your ego, right? Romance is out to tickle your id. (laughs) I think that's it. I think part of like why this episode maybe felt so contentious is like Venetia is an egoist, but I didn't read her ego as a problem. Because there were so many other people in the text reading her ego as a problem. And I showed up to this text as a person in a moment who already felt undermined. And that Venetia spoke directly to me as like, all these other folks don't fucking know how cool you are and like what you've already been doing. They don't even fucking see it, dude. But you just got to keep doing what you're doing, right? Like I showed up to the vibe that Venetia was putting down as like, I'm an adult woman and all these other adult women don't see me that way. That sucks. They suck. And so like, I was really against this idea that like Venetia is an asshole because I so identified with her. But like, romance isn't against your ego. I have... I don't know that I've ever felt that way. It's never against the hero, the male MC's ego, but it doesn't seem that it's like lauding the female ego very often. And this was a book that was like lauding the female ego. And like, so I was really defensive, but I think you're right to say that like romance isn't against ego. It isn't against ego. It's not against male ego. It's often not very against female ego. It just doesn't show up the same way as like the Burt Reynolds ego of a man. (laughs) 
<laughs> Either way, it will humble you. It will exalt you. What's your vibe? Oh, shit. It does not give a hoot what about your ego. It's pulling the damp soil away from your ego and it's finding that little root and it's tickling it. And you're either like me and you're like, no, or you're like, although I very much enjoyed the experience of this book, or you're like Isabeau and you're like, yes, <laughs> yes, it is. My root is good and you want to tickle it for a good reason. And I'm like, please bury my root. (laughs) (laughs) It's exposed. My root is exposed. Put it away. I don't want this particular root in the sunshine. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think romance more than any other genre is not interested in your ego, soothing it or not soothing it. And I think that's actually really, really special. Perhaps we all share this id, right? And I just wasn't prepared to defend mine. Maybe this just isn't your tipple, right? Like, People tell me all the time I'm a fucking Emma. Do they? Yes! My brother showed rented the Gwyneth Paltrow version of Emma when I was a child and said I was an Emma. Such a good version. That also makes you a sharing clueless. Also a dick! <laughs> I think one of the things that's worth understanding about Emma is that she's probably an Aries. <laughs> she's certainly... She's- She's something. She's an Aries or a Scorpio. Maybe. Well, not a Scorpio. Okay. But I think like. God, that was so fucking Emma of me. (laughs) I think what you should take from this as a potential Emma (laughs) is that your vibe and your heart are in the right place. And that when it comes to and like this and I do mean this from the bottom of my actual heart as a as a friend and partner in this business, you take criticism for what it is exactly like you take it in the spirit that it is given. Right. So if somebody gives you bad criticism because they're being a shithead, you're like, (laughs) fuck you. But if somebody's like, hey, this this didn't feel good, you will think about it. It's never like you take it out of hand. Right. There's there's a version of my dear friend Morgan who doesn't ever need a blueberry hill because it never gets to that point. It's a strawberry picking party. This is so Emma of you. <laughs> Anyways. In the book, Emma and others visit Mr. Knightley's Donwell Abbey and stop to eat strawberries from the beds. In June, a strawberry party is held at Donwell Abbey, George Knightley's estate. Emma absorbs observes George and Harriet walking together. Frank does not arrive. Jane Fairfax leaves early to walk home. And finally, Frank arrives in agitation, not at all as usual. So the next day, on an exploring party to Box Hill, Emma and Frank flirt. Jane appears bothered, and Emma is rude to Miss Bates. Emma goes to make amends the next morning. It is strawberries! Box Hill. Okay. So we've talked about sexiest part. We've talked about weirdest part. What do we need to do last? Venetia is where we start to see, like, this is my thing about Venetia being a likable narrator, is I feel like nuance slipping from romance. And I think eventually, like, like you can't shake that, like, id tickle from romance and that need for a specific vibe. But here is where, like, and 
I think we've read romances that are much more Austin, and I think we've read romances that are much more higher. But I see higher as good as it is, as pleasant as it is, as pleasurable as it is, you know, listening to the audiobook, what a delight. Reading the text itself was fun. I was just going slow because I was lingering in it is what I've learned because it only took Dickie Arms four hours. I see like not so much a pathway as like a split. The tracing is more complex than we had Austin, then we had Hire, then we had Judith Ivory. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's exactly right. Like uh, Georgette Hire is a kind of... Yeah, if if Jane Austen is the Vena Cava, then every other vein comes from there, right? And if we think about like a trunk of an artery, Georgette Heyer is a is a big one, but she's not the biggest and she functions with problems. I would say Austen isn't a Vena Cava for romance. I would say, I would argue Bronte is a totally separate a set of veins and they have entwined with Austin's and they have merged in some places, but they're too, I don't think we found the Vena Cava of romance yet. Well, babe, you can think about it as the carotid and the Vena Cava. Like when I don't, I don't know that much about, listen, no, I can't because I don't know this stuff. Okay. So you got, I have to think of a different metaphor. I'll wait while you come up with one. Oh, you're way well. I come up with because the no, Vena Cava like, and the carotid. It's two separate. It's like two separate. Like one is an uptake and one is an outtake. No. Okay. <laughs> like that's the Vena Cava and the carotid. Like, well, the- I'm not ready to accept that as the metaphor. Okay. I think they're two like output things. Two separate outputs. We'll find a better metaphor. We'll think about it more because maybe you're right. Maybe. Now I remember the point we were trying to make before we got hung up on the strawberries. There was an Emma and then Hire wrote an Emma that really misunderstood Emma. And then that became the heroine archetype. And I think you pointed out earlier, a lot of people identify with Jane. Maybe. I'll, maybe I'll take, maybe I take that at face value. Or maybe I say people who say they identify with Jane are really just Elizabeths who think of themselves as Elizabeths but don't want to seem like they think of themselves as Elizabeths. I have to take people at their word when they say that they think of themselves as Janes. You know what I mean? I'm just like, okay. Well, have you tried squinting at them as a follow-up? See what see what comes out next. And Elliot comes out next. Then you find out they're all... F- they're all fucking kitties. None of them are kitties. Maybe some of them are Marys. All kitties. A world of some kitties. Some of them are Marys. It's Lydia's world and we're all just living in it. And I'll tell you what. Now now we're cooking with Kay. gas. Lydia. <laughs> but like that's like it's it's like I think Venetia is a misinterpretation of Emma and like a deliberately written likable Emma who doesn't. A deliberately written likable Emma, yeah. And uh, that ends up being the thing that takes hold. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And uh, and I think it's because we all want to be a likable Emma. Yeah. If given the opportunity. And we were given the opportunity 
George at Hire gave us the opportunity and it beget a whole lot of regencies with misbegotten likable Emmas. And that's the episode. Misbegotten Emma. Perfect. Womancer and Omance. Womance. Fuck. Yeah, like anyone who is, first of all, it's a delight. And second of all, it is like, you'll see it everywhere. It's like when you learn a new word and the word's new to you and then you realize the word was everywhere all the time. Yeah, I think one of the things about this text that functions for me is like, it's like a biblical text. And like once you understand yes. that the Bible has been literized everywhere in fiction, like it actually helps to understand who John the Baptist was so that you can understand that trope. Venetia functions like that. She functions like a real key inside of romance in general. But also listen to this book, Richard Armitage. Oh my God. Like... Uh, I w- it's definitely the Bible, and then Mermaid's Kiss is the Book of Mormon. Yes! Oh my god, yes! <laughs> it's like, what? Yes. Okay. It's easier to understand Mermaid's Kiss if you know Venetia. <laughs> it's easier to understand everything. It's easier to understand yourself if you read Venetia and then you have to spend, you don't have to, but your friend wants to and you're forced to spend two hours talking about it. You'll learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. It's a vibe. It's a vibe. With that. Flick your id. Loosen your, flick your id. For fuck's sake. <laughs> Are we not doing that? Get your, get your id. Gently caress your id and then flick it and just be like, <laughs> sneeze weirdly (laughs) loosen your stays woli guacamole everyone thanks for listening to another episode of womance Womance is hosted produced and edited by my friend morgan and by my friend isabel Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonsack. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mance underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Romance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.